Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Happy Christmas. It's traditional this time of year to look back at the year just past and to look forward to the year to come. And on this special Christmas episode of Willy Willy Harry Stee, I'll be remembering all the monarchs we've covered since William I took the throne from Harold in 1066 and reminding you of the ground we've covered. But I'll also be looking at the relationship between our British monarchs and Christmas. So settle down in your favourite chair, pour yourself a glass of your favourite tipple and let's enjoy Christmas together by a roaring fire or, or a radiator. In this special edition of the podcast, it's a Christmas bauble, a festive treat, a yuletide miscellany. And as such, it'll just be quite a lot of bits of just things that I, I'm quite interested in talking about. So don't expect a great structured masterpiece. Now, it's quite fitting that the very first monarch in our rhyme, our first willy, William the Conqueror, William the Bastard, call him what you will, was crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day in 1066, the end of a momentous year. And it can't have been an accident that he chose that date. It wasn't random. I think William was saying... I am God's appointed. I am meant to be here. This was always supposed to be. He was echoing what the founder of France, Charles the Great, Charlemagne, had done when he got himself crowned on Christmas Day some 260 years earlier in 800. I describe Charlemagne as the founder of France. He's sometimes referred to as the father of Europe. 
because he did manage to unite most of Western Europe under what became known as the Carolingian Empire, which eventually evolves into the Holy Roman Empire, which would last for a thousand years. And so it was on Christmas Day in 800 AD that Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne Emperor of the Romans, although he himself was a Frank, which is where we get the word France from, and the Franks, of course, were German. But it kind of cemented Christian rule and it stopped the chaos of all these competing smaller tribes, towns, countries, whatever. Um, Charlemagne sort of organises it into essentially an empire. See, look, I've already distracted myself and gone off on one. But so to come back to William, his ceremony in Westminster Abbey, it wasn't called Westminster Abbey yet then. Uh, it was called, I think, St. Peter's Abbey. But his coronation ceremony was conducted half in English and half in French, um, although there were versions of English and French that we wouldn't really recognise today. And so William is saying, I am here by the right of God. I am here to rule the English, I am one of you, and I am also here on behalf of the Normans, in behalf of the French. So I'm uniting the English and the Normans. And before the ceremony, William had instructed that the Saxon lords present, probably forced to be there, would shout their assent and start cheering when the crown was lowered onto his head. But the nervous and trigger-happy Norman soldiers who were guarding the abbey inside and out when they heard all this shouting, they thought that some kind of riot had erupted. And so they immediately pulled out their swords and started killing as many people as they could. But William ploughed on with the ceremony anyway. He wanted to make sure that by the end of the day, he was officially King of England. And I, and I think this is a sort of uh, precursor to the rest of his reign. He's saying, look, I am tough. Nobody is going to argue with me. Uh, any problems and you will all be killed. So it wasn't such a great Christmas for the English, the one of 1066. And as I say, it set the tone for William's reign, but in many ways it also set the tone for the whole idea of the monarchy in England and how it unfolded this history of, of hubris and pride and farcical mistakes and violent misunderstandings. So much of the story of our monarchy seems to be encapsulated in that Christmas Day ceremony. And that episode, oh, it seems so long ago now, uh, uh, long ago that I recorded it, but also long ago in, in our British history. It's a thousand years from then to now. And it's about 600 years to where we're up to in the series with the Stuarts. And... It's always fun to look back and to think how far we've come and how we got from one place to another. We're well over halfway now. And I can look ahead over the crowns of the upcoming monarchs, William and Mary and the Georges, William and on into the 20th century with more Georges and Edwards up to the present day. There in the distance is King Charles III himself sitting on the throne. And this is Charles's second Christmas as king, um, his first since he was crowned himself in Westminster Abbey. Amazing that continuity from William I through to King Charles. Although the regalia that Charles used was all new because Oliver Cromwell either had the crown jewels sold off or melted down. The only thing to survive 
was a spoon, which we looked at with Leander Delisle when we were talking about King Charles I. The anointing spoon, which is still used today, uh, small and seemingly quite comical, but actually crucial to this whole idea of the monarch being appointed by God. He is anointed with this holy oil and a magical piece of religious mumbo-jumbo mysticism occurs at that point. The oil is the touch of God. So perhaps Cromwell destroyed everything except the most important thing. Perhaps it was even more important than the crown, this spoon. So sometime next spring, I'll be dealing with King Charles III and then... My rhyme will have ended, the Willy Willy Harry Stee rhyme, and I will have to decide what happens next. What do I go on to? Uh, and actually, you know, if, if you are a fan of the series, if you've been enjoying it and you have any ideas about how you might like to see it progressing after King Charles III, please do let me know. Even if you're just a fan of the show and you, and you want to tell me how brilliant it is, um, get in touch. If you hate it, don't bother. Uh, I, the easiest way is on... Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, where I am at Monstroso, M-O-N-S-T-R-O-S-O. Because the thing about doing a podcast is that there's no actual sort of place where people can can leave comments unless I've missed it. So, so please do let me know. Or you can get in touch via the new podcast email, charlie at willywilly.co.uk. It's quite easy to remember, but I hope it doesn't attract the wrong sort of pervert. So, yes, where were we? Christmas, the theme of this episode. But why do we celebrate Christmas? Where does it come from? I mean, you know, arguments have raged in the Christian church ever since Christ died, exactly the day he was born, and how it relates to the modern calendar, because we've gone through various different versions of the calendar uh, to see what actually functions best. But it seems very much that Christmas was a reimagining of a more ancient midwinter feast and festival. And certainly this is very close to the date where the Romans celebrated Saturnalia, which in turn was based on an old um, ancient Greek festival, a midwinter festival, a kind of winter blowout. And the Romans got up to all sorts of hijinks. There was a lot of feasting, a lot of drinking. Gifts were exchanged, sacrifices made to the god. There was gambling, partying, a giddy sense of abandon, a kind of midwinter madness. Someone would be made king of the Saturnalia. And it wouldn't necessarily be a highborn man. There was this idea of breaking the rules, of breaking taboos and turning the world upside down. The master would become servant and servants the masters. And it's interesting how this concept of reversal is central to a lot of these midwinter festivals and to a certain extent it's there in the story of Christ's birth and the whole Christmas myth. Here we have this lowly peasant family where the mother has to give birth in a stable. They can't get into any of the inns um, and so there's this baby in a, in a manger, this little basket that the animals eat their hay out of and yet this little peasant child is visited by these three grand men, the wise men, the three kings, bearing riches from all around the world. Um, and that is, as I say, that's at the heart of the idea of the Saturnalia. And this, Christ's birth, is the ultimate reversal for the king of the Saturnalia. 
this tiny little peasant baby is now king. And when the Romans invaded Britain, they brought their Saturnalia festival, but there was already an existing midwinter festival uh, in Britain at the time. I think all cultures in the Northern Hemisphere have this history of it because it is the middle of winter. December is the month in which we have the shortest day, the longest night. It's the bleak midwinter. Families would have been coming indoors and would be spending much of the winter stuck in their houses. They would bring their animals in, those that they could actually manage to feed through the winter. They might bring in a couple of cows who would keep them warm and they would keep the cows warm as well and then they would have to slaughter a lot of their animals because they couldn't feed them through the winter and so there would be this big feast where the parts of the animals that couldn't be preserved were eaten and traditionally it would have been a lot of poultry uh, would have been killed off and eaten at this time so it would have been a big treat to actually eat your chickens your geese your ducks whatever uh, but also pigs would be slaughtered and would be a lot of it would be preserved as hams or whatever, but obviously also turned into sausages. So that so you would have this big winter blowout and it would kind of cheer you up. You would light fires and lamps and candles to keep the darkness at bay. You would decorate your home with symbols of green life in the harshest time of year. Holly and ivy and other evergreens contrasted with the bright red of the holly berries. So these Christmas colours, the dark green and the red, go, go way back. And you would make merry with food and drink and music and laughter. And that would be enough to sustain you physically and spiritually through the long winter months. And there's a slight element of sacrifice involved in this, that a lot of these animals would have probably been offered up to the gods for them to eat and to say to them, please bring the sun back after the long winter and make the days longer and bring back life in spring and please let's have a good year next year. So it made sense for the Christians to then bolt on the idea of Christmas over the top of this. The Romans and then the Christians and then these Germanic tribes who came over, the Angles and the Saxons, they pretty much obliterated British culture. We know very, very little about it. We don't know what a Druid Christmas would have been like, but it seems probable that it would have been actually quite similar to a Saxon Christmas. And there are lots of elements from Christmas then, which we still have. The idea of giving gifts. This was always part of Christmas, as it was part of um, Saturnalia. But the Christian idea of Christmas is the one that now holds throughout Europe, even though it's very easy to see the, the pagan aspects poking out from under the skirts of the angels. And the Christians were very good at this, a kind of pasting a veneer of Christianity over long-held pagan beliefs, simply by changing the names of the old gods to fit in with the Christian pantheon. So when the Christian monks arrive, they bring with them this whole, as I say, it's a Christian pantheon of saints and martyrs and religious figures like Mary and Joseph and the three kings, whatever. And these new figures replace the old polytheistic gods. So Odin, Wotan, uh, worshipped by the Norse peoples and the Saxon peoples, becomes Jahweh, Jehovah, God the Father. Frigg or Freya, 
who was the goddess of fertility and motherhood, becomes the Virgin Mary, the mother of us all. And the great Anglo-Saxon chronicler, historian, the recording monk, the Venerable Bede, uh, claims that the word Easter comes from another Anglo-Saxon fertility goddess, Eustra. And certainly Easter would have been superimposed over an existing pagan spring fertility festival. And Christ himself is in many ways a version of the old Norse god Balder, as I say, also a Saxon god. They had slightly different names. I'll call him Balder. Balder is the sort of good god, the one that everyone liked. He was wise and gentle and kind and peaceful. His brother Loki, very familiar from the Marvel Universe, is the sort of evil god, the version of Satan, if you like, Balder's brother. Everybody loved Balder, particularly his father, Odin, and they arranged that nothing could harm Balder. It was really important to keep him alive. And Balder made all of the trees and plant life swear that they would not harm him. The only thing they left out was mistletoe. I'm not quite sure why. I think it was considered a lowly plant, not worth bothering about. But also mistletoe is this weird parasitic plant which grows out of trees. You can't really cultivate it. It just happens. So it, it had this sort of magical, mystical property about it. It became a symbol of fertility because of this idea that it seemed to spontaneously generate itself. Um, and the idea of kissing under the mistletoe goes way, way back to it being, if you wanted a fertile marriage, if you wanted to have lots of children, you would embrace under the mistletoe. Uh, but mistletoe was left out. Mistletoe didn't have to swear not to hurt Belder. And Loki um, deviously made, was either an arrow or a spear, it changes in different versions. And all the gods were having great fun firing arrows at Belder and throwing spears at him and nothing would hit him. Everything missed and they were all laughing and having fun. And Loki turns up and he says to his blind brother, the god Hoda, here, look, I've got an arrow for you. Let me guide your aim. And Hoda fires this arrow or throws a spear at Balder. And Balder is killed, um, pierced in the side. But he then comes back after the apocalypse, after the Armageddon, Ragnarok, Gotadamarung, the twilight of the gods. When they're all destroyed, Balder comes back. He's resurrected and, and ushers in this this golden age. And this is exactly the same resurrection myth as, as in nearly every religion and i guess it ties in with the idea of of spring every year of, of the, the world being born anew and jesus himself you know pierced in the side on the cross by the spear the spear of destiny wielded by the centurion longinus you know there's this weird mythological aspects get built into the the christian myth there and in you know in some versions balder is is kind of hanging on a tree when people are firing at him. And he's known as the bleeding god. And Balder and Christ are the same figure, and they're pretty much the same as Osiris from Egyptian mythology, um, who again was killed by his own devious brother, set and chopped up. Um, but Isis collected the pieces together, and Osiris is reborn, and the world is reborn, and the sun rises every morning. Yeah, so all the great religions have this same basic setup of a father and a mother and a child being born who eventually usurps the father, is more important than the father, and sacrifices himself to save us all.
But I digress, quite significantly digressed there. But So that's Christmas, and, and that's what William the Conqueror was tapping into, the enormous power of this midwinter festival. And as I say, I'm sure that there were many familiar elements of a, of a Saxon Christmas and probably some quite bizarre traditions that we, that we no longer follow and have been forgotten over the years. But certainly that Christmas, 1066, under William was a bit different. It's like, oh, oh, what are you doing for Christmas? Oh, I thought I might get massacred by some Normans. For the English, this really was the world turned upside down. Their king, Harold, had been slaughtered in battle and the king of the Saturnalia had taken his place, the lord of misrule. And things went from bad to worse as the Normans systematically obliterated Saxon culture. And that's where the series started with William I, Willie. And he was succeeded by his son, William Rufus, William the Red, um, who died in this mysterious hunting accident alongside his brother, Henry I, who rushed to Winchester to secure the treasury and from there rushed back to London to get himself crowned King of England, leaving his, uh, his older brother, William, lying in the forest with an arrow sticking out of him. Suspicious or what? And then we looked at the tragic story of the White Ship, where Henry's eldest son, William Atheling, went down in this awful accident in the English Channel, alongside half the aristocrats of England. And Henry I never managed to produce another legitimate male heir, but insisted on his deathbed that his daughter Matilda would take the throne. But as soon as he's died, all the men got together and said, we're not going to be ruled by a woman. Who should we have instead? Oh, Stephen. He seems keen. Uh, this is Matilda's cousin, Stephen, which leads to this awful civil war known as the Anarchy. And Stephen himself was named after Saint Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who we probably know best in this country now as being mentioned in the carol Good King Wenceslas. As we know, Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen, which is the 26th of December. Uh, Boxing Day. Now, before people were literate and really, I suppose, also before the calendar was really an established thing that everyone was following properly, where only a few monks and educated aristocrats would, would kind of know the full workings of it. The days were often named after saints. It was like, I won't see you next Wednesday. I'll see you on St. David's Day or whatever. And And the whole of the year was kind of structured around the big festivals, Christmas, Easter, whatever, uh, but also smaller religious festivals. Your local church would be named after a saint and they would have a saint's day. So this whole sort of Christian panoply structured the year. And as I say, St. Stephen's Day was Boxing Day and people wouldn't have said, I'll see you on December the 26th. They wouldn't have said, I'll see you on Boxing Day. They would have said, I'll see you on St. Stephen's Day. The reason we call it Boxing Day is that traditionally uh, the day after Christmas, servants would be given the day off and they would be given these little boxes of with food or bits of money or gifts um, uh, to keep them happy, to make sure they came back to work the day after. So the story of good King Wenceslas, he was king. Well, actually, he wasn't a king. He was actually a prince of Bohemia, which is now part of Czechoslovakia. And he very much embodied this tradition of the good Christian king. He's a strong and powerful ruler, but he's also a compassionate ruler and he follows the teachings of Christ. 
And in this carol, we see him going out on St. Stephen's Day. Well, he's, it's his version of Boxing Day. He's taking gifts and money for the poor. And he has his servant with him who hasn't been given the day off. And the servant is getting very, very cold. And Wenceslas says, step in my footprints in the snow. And that will magically keep you warm through me and through me to God. So this, this sort of really cements this idea of, of the great Christian king. And do please remember it is King Wenceslas. A lot of people think the carol is Good King Wences, last looked out, uh, but it's not. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's quite a lot of carols that we get wrong. For instance, we wish you a Merry Christmas. People often sing, good tidings we bring to you and your king. Which makes no sense at all. It's kin. It's kin. It's your family they're bringing the good tidings to, not your bloody king. Likewise, God rest you merry gentlemen. There's a comma after the merry. It's not about merry gentlemen. It's about God resting you merry. God rest you merry, gentlemen. Whatever the bloody hell that's supposed to mean. But please do get it right. It's Wenceslas and kin and always sing the comma after merry. But our own King Stephen, uh, not a great king. He seems to have been a reasonably nice bloke, but he led the country into complete anarchy, civil war. And it is Matilda's son, Henry II, who pretty much wins the war. Stephen is allowed to stay on the throne till the end of his life, which turns out to be only a few months. Henry II takes the throne. In my opinion, a pretty good king. He restored order after the civil war and he brought back stability even though his own family was absolutely dysfunctional. He seems to have enjoyed Christmas. He spent one Christmas in Dublin where they built a whole palace for him, a winter palace. And, you know, it's probably the precursor of all these ghastly winter fairs and winter wonderlands that get put up by some shyster. But Henry had one built in Dublin and they ate a lot of poultry for their Christmas feast, including animals that hadn't normally been eaten in Ireland before, such as cranes. So it always was a tradition of Christmas to eat some kind of wild fowl or domesticated fowl. So they seem to have eaten cranes, herons, wild geese, peacocks. If it flew, they ate it. 
And when I had the historian Helen Castor on the show to talk about Henry, this is Helen Castor who wrote the fantastic She-Wolves, the story about these charismatic, amazing medieval women who, because they were women, were never allowed to fully take the throne and rule in their own right. And one of them was Henry II's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. And by marrying Eleanor, Henry took over these huge swathes of France. But she fell out with him. His sons fell out with him, including Richard, who went on to become Richard the Lionheart, and John, who went on to become Wicked Prince John. And they all went to war with each other, all constantly fighting each other. Henry blamed Eleanor for leading his boys on, had her locked up in these various castles, but she would occasionally be let out at Christmas. And Helen and I talked about one of our favourite films, which is The Lion in Winter. But I didn't have the space to put this part of our chat in the finished show. So I'd like to share it with you now. But a bit of info for you first. The film is in that classic tradition of dysfunctional family get togethers, which are even better if they're dysfunctional family get togethers around the Christmas tree. Uh, it's based on a play by William Goldman's brother, James. William Goldman being the guy that wrote Marathon Man, Butch Cassidy, All the President's Men, and almost every other great film of the 70s and 80s. But as I say, his brother James wrote the play the film is based on, and it's packed full of cracking dialogue. Like, shall we hang the holly or each other? King Henry I is played by Peter O'Toole. Anthony Hopkins plays Richard, Richard the Lionheart, and he is written very much as being gay, in love with the King of France, Philip II, played by Timothy Dalton, one of our James Bonds. And the music for the film is by the excellent John Barry, probably best known for his Bond scores. Eleanor is played by, and it's perfect casting, Catherine Hepburn. And I asked Helen if anything of Eleanor's own words have survived as letters or whatever. Nothing survives. So all we've got is, is The Lion in Winter. And what, <laughs> what a play that, I, I mean, that's what we've got. And actually, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn is no bad guide, I think, to... But she's uh, allowed to say quite a lot in the film. Uh, she is. I imagine Eleanor was saying a lot behind the walls yes. of uh, the castle in which she was incarcerated. I mean, it's, it's, it's so interesting. You know, it was one of the things I look at through this series is why some monarchs we know a lot about and you know and and henry the second is is very much one of them and it, and it, often it's because there's been a play or a film or a book or obviously a shakespeare play and henry richard and john have appeared in countless films and tv shows and plays haven't they i mean peter o'toole played henry twice once in beckett uh, about the assassination of thomas beckett and once here in the lion in winter it's a terrific film I'm not sure exactly how historically accurate it is. I think it's a, a lot of stuff has been telescoped into an it, eventful weekend in, in the castle. It has. And um, I seem to remember there's a scene with Christmas presents around a tree. I think we should... Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a little bit of artistic licence going on there. But I think the great thing about The Lion in Winter, as with almost any work of fiction, mm. great work of fiction about history, is that it gets at historical truth, perhaps not literally, yes. but through the relationships that it shows and the characters that it shows. I think my favourite, that moment when Eleanor says something like, um, of course he has a knife. He always has a knife. We all have knives. It's 1183. <laughs> <laughs> 
but that does actually really tell you something that that um to be a ruler in 1183 mm. you had to be a soldier yeah um you didn't have a police force you didn't have a standing army you didn't have telecommunications the only way to rule these extraordinary territories was to get on your horse get however many soldiers together that you could get and keep moving so the realities of power are very very different the strength of the leadership required is something very alien to us with our politician sound bites and arguments about ties and so on. Um, <laughs> I, I think the Lion in Winter is well worth watching for that reason. And again, for that sense of Eleanor as one of the sharpest minds trying to deal with this squabbling, mm. all of them charismatic, but not all of them as um, on the ball as she was. <laughs> So that was historian Helen Castor in an unused excerpt from the episode we did on Henry II. And yes, obviously he was succeeded by Richard I, who who died young after being shot by a crossbow whilst besieging a town in France. His younger brother John came to the throne. And I think it's an understatement to say that he was not a particularly popular king. Uh, And perhaps this can be best summed up as we're talking about Christmas, a poem that A.A. Milne wrote called King John's Christmas. Um, And I'll just read that to you here. King John was not a good man, and no good friends had he. He stayed in every afternoon, but no one came to tea. And round about December, the cards upon his shelf, which wished him lots of Christmas cheer and fortune in the coming year, were never from his near and dear, but only from himself. And I could have saved myself recording an entire episode and just done that poem. Everyone knows how John fell out with the Lords and they forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which was the first official written document about the actual limits of being a king, about what you were and weren't allowed to do. But it also put limits on essentially Parliament, what Parliament was and wasn't allowed to do. So a very important document, but but it's perhaps... Important because it represents a lot of documents that were being signed at these times, various charters, as it were. And what was quite interesting to see, actually, was how little effect Magna Carta had. Neither the Lords nor the King really intended to stick to it. And they very quickly went to war with each other. Another civil war, although it wasn't called that. And John died of dysentery whilst skulking about in the Fenlands trying to avoid another battle. And as soon as John died, it all fell apart. And his successor, Henry, Henry III, John's son, inherited this mess and carried on much in the way that John had, falling out with his parliament, particularly uh, with this, it has to be said, slightly divisive figure of Simon de Montfort, Simon de Montfort, the leader of the parliamentary revolt against Henry, who is seen as the father of the House of Commons, but he had some quite unpleasant characteristics, such as his virulent anti-Semitism. But Simon de Montfort was charismatic and it could have gone either way, but he was finally captured and executed. And Henry's dynamic young son, Edward, came to the throne as Edward I, Considered a great king at the time, very militaristic, which is what everyone wanted. He had a go at the French. He particularly had a go at the Scots and became known as the Hammer of the Scots, although he never quite fully hammered them flat. Well, one of the things he did was to take this highly symbolic object 
the Stone of Schoon, which is this big lump of stone which the Scottish kings had sat on to be crowned. And he took it. He said, no, that's mine now. I'm in charge here. He installed it in Westminster Abbey, and this cold seat was used for coronations until the 17th century when a wooden uh, bench was kind of built on top of it, and that's grown to become the current rather more grand coronation throne. Although, to tell you the truth, it's not actually that grand. It does look a little bit like something that's been knocked up in an afternoon by those uh, contestants on Britain's Greatest Woodworker or whatever it's called. Uh, but sorry, but ever since then, every monarch crowned in England has essentially sat on the Stone of Schoon. Now, in 1914, some suffragettes exploded a bomb next to it, filled with shrapnel in an attempt to destroy it. But they only succeeded in damaging the wooden throne and cracking the stone, although nobody was aware of that at the time. So it carried on sitting there until Christmas Day in 1950 when four Scottish students got into Westminster Abbey and stole it. Now, in those days, security was obviously quite lax. You try getting into Westminster Abbey now without a ticket. You'll be in trouble. But they managed to get in and were delighted to find that the suffragettes had cracked the stone into two pieces, making it much easier to carry. And as I say, they stole it. They took it back to Scotland, where it disappeared for a while. But it turned up a few months later on the altar of Arbroath Abbey and was taken back to London. But in 1996, the British government returned it to Scotland as part of the growing push for Scottish independence, certainly Scottish cultural independence. And it now lives in Edinburgh Castle as part of the Scottish crown jewels. So it's interesting that Christmas Day in 1950, we have this very symbolic act taking the stone back to Scotland. And, you know, it's a, it's a, there's also a strong spirit of Christmas here. It has a whiff of drunken student hijinks, but also of Christmas misrule, turning the tables on the powers that be. So, as I say, the stone was given back to the Scots, which meant that when King Charles III came to the throne in May 2023, he had to ask to borrow the stone from the Scots. And they graciously lent it to him and it was brought back to London so that he could be crowned in the same way as every English king since Edward I. So Edward I, tough king, his son, Edward II, weak king, not popular, eventually imprisoned and murdered on the orders of his son, Edward III. He's one tough mother. He rules England with an iron fist, but manages to maintain law and order, which means that the country is generating enough wealth to allow him to declare war on the French. And he kicks off the Hundred Years' War. Some great early victories, such as at the battles of Poitiers and Cressy. But then the Black Death comes along, puts an end to all of that. There aren't enough people around to go to war. There isn't enough money around to finance it. But Edward manages to pull England through, despite the fact that at least 50% of the population of Europe is wiped out. Henry rules to a ripe old age and has a magnificent heir to the throne. Edward, the Black Prince, this great warrior figure, just like his father. But like so many 
people then, kings, heirs to the throne, whatever. He died of dysentery and never made it to the throne, which meant that we ended up with Richard II, who was a boy at the time, a nephew of Edward III, and perhaps Edward shouldn't have given him his blessing and he might have chosen one of his powerful sons, such as John of Gaunt, but he didn't. He marked up Richard to take the throne uh, Richard got off to a good start. He managed to put down the Peasants' Revolt. Well, a good start if you're a monarch, not such a good start if you're a peasant. But that seemed to have gone to his head, and he thought he was absolutely marvellous ever since that day. Actually, it was it was since his birth, because he, he liked to say that there were three kings present at his birth. Uh, he was obviously putting himself in the position of Christ, as this Christ-like divine figure who was the first monarch to properly commission a portrait of himself. But his reign got worse and worse the older he got. Uh, but interestingly, um, for one Christmas, he was given some quite fancy presents. As I say, the tradition of giving presents had always been part of Christmas. Although traditionally, present giving was done either on New Year's Eve or Twelfth Night, this is the 12th night of the 12 nights of Christmas, which usually starts on Christmas Day, but some people have it starting on Christmas Eve. But the 12th night almost seems to have been a more important festival day, feast day, than Christmas Day. And I think perhaps Christmas becomes the sort of, well, we'll get the religious bit out of the way, but the thing we really like, the presents and the partying, will be 12th night. And you have these 12 days of Christmas, which most people know about from the Christmas Carol. The first day of Christmas my true love gave to me, a partridge in a pear tree. And and most of the early gifts in the carol, they are birds to be eaten. And whoever those gifts are being given to, they're probably someone rich or famous, a star of some sort, possibly a king or an aristocrat. Because as we all know, to he that has, it shall be given. It's like on Oscars night, the Hollywood stars when they take their seat, there's a big goodie bag of stuff there worth thousands of dollars. And, you know, if you're an incredibly rich and successful guitarist, say, you'll be given free guitars by the guitar manufacturers uh, and you know, free designer outfits, whatever. And it's exactly the same with the politicians. They've always been given lavish gifts at Christmas, holiday, travels, cars, watches, whatever. And kings and queens are no different. If you want to suck up to the monarch, give them an expensive gift. And in 1392, the citizens of London gave Richard II, amongst other things, a camel and a pelican. The pelican didn't make it into the 12 days of Christmas. It's a shame. It would have been a bit of fun to throw in seven pelicans. I don't know. Maybe they don't rhyme. So Richard was given these exotic beasts. It was a, a single humped camel, a dromedary. And Richard would have put them in his zoo, in the royal zoo. Now, the interesting thing is that there had been a royal zoo since Henry I's time. So Henry builds this zoo at Woodstock. And among his animals, he's got lions, he's got tigers, he's got camels. But his favourite seems to have been the porcupines. I don't know if you've ever seen a porcupine. They used to have some in London Zoo. They are quite extraordinary animals. It's huge, long quills coming out of them. But yes, that this was a desperately exotic creature and he was very proud of his zoo. But it wasn't the best location and a century later it was moved to the Tower of London 
and it remained there for 600 years, uh, particularly as exotic animals were often given as royal gifts by, obviously, by foreign rulers. In 1235, Henry III received three lions, or well, they could have been leopards, because lions and leopards often seemed to be confused at the time, from the Emperor Frederick II. He was also given a polar bear, which used to swim in the moat. And in 1255, the King of France gave him the first elephant to be seen in Britain since Roman times. And the zoo kept being added to and improved on over the years. James I had a viewing platform built where uh, locals could come and look at the animals and the, the, some of the animals would be forced to fight against each other. This was a great spectacle. And if you couldn't afford a ticket, if you brought along a dog or a cat to be thrown into the ring and attacked by a lion, uh, you'd, you'd get a free seat. By the 1830s, it was considered too dangerous to keep the zoo in the Tower of London. The animals were always killing each other and killing their keepers and killing members of the public. And so the Duke of Wellington, who was constable of the Tower at the time, ordered all the animals to be moved to a new specially built zoo in Regent's Park, which is still there today. So that was all begun by, by Henry I. So Richard II might have had a dromedary and a pelican, but it didn't stop him being imprisoned and starved to death by his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke, from a rival branch of the family, descended from John of Gaunt, the Lancastrian side of the family. He deposes Richard, takes the throne as Henry IV, has a slightly wobbly reign. His son, Henry V, takes over and says, how am I going to unite the country? I know, I'll restart the war with France. And he has a lot of success, obviously, at the Battle of Agincourt. He marries the daughter of the French king, lines himself up to take over the French throne and dies of dysentery. But his son, Henry VI, does come to the throne as king of England and king of France, even though he's only a child. He doesn't ever really manage to capitalise on being king of France. And the French don't really ever let him take power over there. Because he was a fairly rubbish king, he suffered a lot of mental health problems and was pretty weak. If it wasn't for his wife, Margaret of Anjou, he would have been deposed a lot earlier. But essentially, the country descends into civil war, into the Wars of the Roses. And first of all, Richard of York, descended from one of Edward III's other sons, Lionel, the Duke of Clarence, older brother of John of Gaunt, goes up against Henry VI, who is descended from John and therefore a Lancastrian. But Richard of York dies in battle before he takes the throne and his son, the future Edward IV, carries on the fight. There's a lot of toing and froing. <laughs> There's the Wars of the Roses for you. Summed up in a nutshell, there was a lot of toing and froing, a lot of dinging and donging. But anyway, in the end, Edward of York is the ultimate victor and Henry VI, the ultimate loser. Now, this is the period of Warwick the Kingmaker a fascinating figure. And indeed, in the past, people have tended to be more fascinated in him than Edward IV, who is a slightly forgotten king. Warwick liked to boast that he had put two kings on the throne and he had deposed two kings, the same two kings, Henry and Edward. He's something of a Dominic Cummings figure. I think Cummings would like to think of himself as Dominic the Kingmaker and Kingbreaker. So originally, 
Warwick supports Edward and fights hard to get him on the throne, just as Dominic supported Boris and fought hard to get him, well, not on the throne, but into number 10 as Prime Minister. And once Edward's on the throne, Warwick works hard behind the scenes to keep him there and make him more powerful. He certainly feels that he is the man in charge and Edward is his puppet, which very much seems to be what happened when Boris came to power. But Edward, like Boris, had been very much a ladies' man. He had lots of mistresses and illegitimate children. But then he married the wrong woman and fell out with Warwick. Warwick had been trying to line up a good political marriage for Edward with a foreign princess when Edward announced that he had secretly married a commoner, Elizabeth Woodville. Dominic is enraged. Sorry. Sorry. Warwick is enraged. The king is not doing what he's supposed to do. He's listening to his wife more than to him. He's saying, well, I'm king. I'm actually in charge, not you, matey boy. So Warwick defects to the other camp and tries to sabotage Edward's reign. He switches his allegiance to King Henry VI and goes into partnership with his wife, Margaret of Anjou. And he gets Henry back on the throne. Edward is temporarily ousted. But in the end, Edward's too strong for Warwick. He comes roaring back and Warwick is defeated and killed in battle. So that's not exactly what happened to Dominic Cummings. Yet, there's only so far you can take the analogy. But Edward, Ed, Edward was an OK king, but he gets ill and proceeds to die young. He has a son, also called Edward, and King Edward asks his brother Richard, this is the new Richard of York, he says, look after Edward, won't you? And Richard said, yes, of course I will. But as soon as Edward IV dies, Richard III essentially locks his son Edward V, the rightful king of England, up in the Tower of London. Now, it was interesting because we had... Two rival historians. One is Matthew Lewis, who's the chairman of the Richard III Society. The other is Nathan Armin, who is... Well, he's not chairman of the Henry VII Society, but if there was one, he would be. He's a big supporter of the Tudors, um, not just because Nathan is Welsh. Um, and I sort of... Uh, I'd sort of known there was this thing about the Ricardians trying to um, untarnish the image of Richard III and say that Henry Tudor was the real villain. Um, and we had both of them on on different shows arguing their cause. And I have to say that the traditional idea is that the finger of blame points to Richard III as to the murderer of Edward V, one of the princes in the tower. But his supporters, and he has very vocal supporters, shall we say, who say, no, 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 the real villain of the piece is obviously Henry VII. Uh, we'll never know, but I'm afraid I did upset the Ricardians, I know, but I did come down on the side of Richard III, being the villain of the piece. Edward V and his young brother disappears, never to be seen again, and Richard takes the throne. He grows increasingly unpopular, and now this guy called Henry Tudor nips in from the sidelines. He has a distant claim to the throne. But he capitalises on anti-Ricardian sentiment, goes to war with him and kills him at the Battle of Bosworth. Henry then takes the throne as Henry VII. A wobbly reign, but he hands over to his son Henry VIII, who is one powerful mother guy. And we know all about Henry and the blooming six wives. It all gets quite messy as he's got two daughters by different wives. 
But he does have a son by a third wife who comes to the throne as Edward VI. Unfortunately, he dies young as well. Things get worse and worse. He decrees that this slightly obscure Lady Jane Grey should succeed him. I, I mean, I, she's only obscure because you've got three real main claimants to the throne. You've got Henry's eldest daughter, Mary. You've got his younger daughter, Elizabeth. And then you've got Lady Jane Grey, who is descended from Henry's sister. Um, it's a bit of a mess. There's some politics goes on. Jane briefly makes it to the throne for six days before having her head cut off. And then Mary comes to the throne, which is really what should have happened in the first place. Uh, she doesn't live forever. And Elizabeth comes to the throne. Partying and festivities were a big part of the Tudor world. Christmases were a big deal. And, and also Twelfth Night was a very big deal. Shakespeare famously wrote his play about it. And the play centres around this idea of the world being turned upside down. There's a girl who pretends to be a boy. There's people falling in love with people that they think are one person but turn out to be something else. There's a servant who is mockingly given a position of power. Um, it's this idea of, of misrule. And misrule was a big part of the, the festival of the 12 days of Christmas, leading up to the big madness of Twelfth Night. And there would always be a lord of misrule who would be in charge of the festivities. And for a while, the Lord of Misrule at Queen Elizabeth's court was her favourite. The only man she ever really seemed to have loved, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester. And it's quite appropriate that Dudley was made the Lord of Misrule, this kind of mock monarch, because he'd always fancied himself as king. He always thought he was going to marry Elizabeth he would be her consort, and then probably he'd be able to wangle his way to being actually king. The closest he got was being the king of misrule, the lord of misrule, in charge of the festivities. And that sort of sums up what Dudley's life was like a bit. It could have been something great, but he ends up slightly a, a figure of fun. This tradition of, of Twelfth Night is the tradition of, of anarchy, of the traditional rules not being applied. As we say in Shakespeare, we have men dressed as women. And through misrule, you have jesters becoming kings and servants becoming masters. And it sounds very much like modern British politics, with clowns like Boris Johnson and Liz Truss becoming prime minister. But Elizabeth didn't like misrule. She didn't like all these festivities, all this madness, all this chaos. She tried to suppress it um, reasonably unsuccessfully. But partly by not marrying people she actually had very strong feelings for, like Dudley, she managed to die unwed and without any children. Now, Lady Jane's claim to the throne was through one of Henry VIII's sisters, his younger sister, Mary. And through his older sister, Margaret, we get to our next monarch, King James, via Mary, Queen of Scots, who Elizabeth had had executed. But her son, James, becomes James VI of Scotland, and he's invited to take the empty throne of England and becomes our first British rather than purely English monarch. And he is enough of a good politician to hold things together. We've had the Reformation. We've had the country falling apart into Catholic rivalries against Protestant. 
And this is mirrored on the level of the monarchy, the royalists' rivalry with the politicians. And there was always a suspicion that the monarchy was secretly Catholic and, when the, and Parliament was staunchly Protestant. This all came to a head when James died and his son Charles took the throne. Uh, couldn't hold things together. Civil war breaks out and he's beheaded. So there you have it, a look back over the last eight months of my life telling you this story and the first 600 years of the story of our monarchs from the crowning of William I on that Christmas day, 1066. And over the next few months, I'll be bringing the story up to date, up to the present day. But of course, Christmas didn't stop with Charles I. It almost did, because one of the things that everybody seems to know about Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans is that they banned Christmas. And you always think, oh, is this, is this slightly apocryphal? But it's pretty much true. The whole idea of the Protestantism was to get rid of all the ceremony and the idolatry in the Catholic Church. And as I said, right back at the beginning of this episode, this idea that the, that the Christians essentially replaced minor deities with saints. You know, if you had your god of health, you now have your patron saint of health. Um, and, you know, you have a saint of the forest. You have a, the saint who looks after agriculture or the forest instead of naiads and dryads and, as I say, fertility goddesses. It was felt very much by the Puritans, by the Protestants, that that there was all this stuff that had crept into the church, into the Catholic church, that, that wasn't from the Bible. And it wasn't. And worshipping was done in a way that was not consistent with what was said in the Bible. Uh, and the Puritans were trying to stamp this out. And in a way, what they were trying to stamp out was the pagan underpinnings of the whole thing. They knew very much that Christmas was a pagan festival, was a pre-Christian thing, and they didn't like this. They didn't like the sense of, of anarchy that was involved in it as well, but also excess, drinking too much, eating too much. This is not godly. This is not what you should be doing. And so it was all shut down, all the excess. You weren't allowed to sing and dance, play music. You weren't allowed to eat too much. There was no feasting. You weren't even allowed to go to church. Christmas was not a day to be celebrated. You couldn't have a festival. Laws were passed to catch anyone holding or attending a special Christmas church service. Life was just supposed to go on as normal. Church was for Sabbath days and you went and you prayed. The idea of having these religious feast days and festivals was anathema to the Puritans. Shops and markets were forced to stay open on the 25th of December. And in the city of London, soldiers were ordered to patrol the streets seizing any food they discovered being prepared for Christmas celebrations. And inevitably, this went down like a cup of cold sick. You can try and impose these things on people. And, you know, people were going along with what they were saying up to a point. OK, yeah, I get that. That bit's OK. What? We're not allowed to get off our faces at Christmas. We're, we're not having that. We're English. And so this kind of revolution, this Puritan revolution went too far. The English don't like things going too far. They like their traditions. And it was one of the things that led to the Restoration when 
Oliver Cromwell's son, Richard, proved to be a damp squib. Everybody said, why don't we just get Charles back from France, make him king, but go back to how things were, everyone will be happy. So Christmas was saved by Charles II. And the other thing that, that had happened by this time is obviously the Americas had been... Uh, I was going to say discovered. Uh, there were people already living there, uh, had been uh, colonised. Well, the, the process of colonisation of the Americas had started and new foodstuffs were coming back and you know, quite important elements of the Christmas dinner were discovered in America, such as turkey and potatoes. You can't have Christmas without a turkey and some roast potatoes. Potatoes were very unpopular at first. They were a sort of novelty item and people thought that they were poisonous, which actually they are. If you if you eat a green potato, it, it can kill you. The plant is related to deadly nightshade. But if you do them properly um, and make sure you batter them about a bit after they've been parboiled and seal them in some nice, very hot oil, like goose fat or peanut oil, um, they do make very nice roast potatoes for your Christmas lunch. And turkey is a great bird for a feast. People always say... Well, if turkey's so good, why do we only eat it on Christmas Day? <laughs> no one really likes turkey. The answer is because on Christmas Day, you are likely to have a large gathering of family and friends. And so you need a large meal. So if you're feeding 10, 12 people, a turkey is perfect. And it's probably the only day of the year when that is a sort of guaranteed thing. So that's why we only eat it one day of the year, because on a normal Wednesday in February shall we say, you don't want to sit down to an animal that can feed 12 people. But we can thank um, the Elizabethans for bringing over those elements of our Christmas lunch. So what are the other elements of Christmas? Well, the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree was introduced to England by Queen Charlotte, who was the consort of King George III. That was the Hanoverian king who lost his marbles and lost America. Luckily by then, we had secured the turkey and the potatoes. Charlotte was German and it had been a German tradition for, for a long, long time to have this uh, tree at Christmas, an evergreen tree. Actually, the, the, the first one that Charlotte brought over was, was branches of a yew tree, another evergreen, which were sort of put up and decorated. And obviously, this is a great pagan tradition. These are the trees that are still green in the winter. This is important. This is an important symbol of life. And it sort of taps in. It goes way back to the tree of life that is in Germanic and Norse mythology. Sort of weirdly gets tied up with, with, with Christ on the cross as well. So we had versions of the idea of the Christmas tree. And the fir tree, or spruce, didn't really become cemented as the traditional Christmas tree until Queen Victoria's time in the 1840s, when her German husband, Albert, started getting them in to decorate their various palaces. And where the royals go, the people follow, like good King Wenceslas's servant treading in his footsteps. And Queen Victoria wrote letters about having a traditional Christmas with presents under the tree. And of course, originally these trees would have been lit up not by uh, electric fairy lights, but by actual candles, which would have been attached to the branches of the trees. And um, anyone who has tried to dispose of a Christmas tree after Christmas by chopping it up and putting it on the fire knows that they go up like a bomb. They have so much of this um, highly volatile oil in them. And 
huge numbers of people lost their lives and their families and their houses through their Christmas trees catching fire from these candles and basically exploding in the living room. So thank God for the invention of electricity. So our modern idea of Christmas is pretty much a Victorian Christmas that was set in stone by Queen Victoria and also by Victorian stories like um, Christmas Carol by Dickens. This idea of what we do at Christmas, the turkey, the tree, the presents under the tree, the, the mulled wine, the drinks with friends. It becomes formalised in Victorian times. And, and that's what we're trying to recreate ever since, this idea of Victorian Christmas, all twinkly and candlelit. And it's always snowy because it snows in A Christmas Carol. It was much colder then. Nowadays, Christmas tends to be a bit sort of warm and grey and a bit damp. It's a shame not to have white Christmases, but you try telling that to the filmmakers. Uh, it's not Christmas without snow. And as most of the Christmas films are filmed in the middle of summer, it's not Christmas without fake snow. One of the other traditions of Christmas Day is the royal speech, the king's speech or the queen's speech. The first one was given on the radio by George V in 1932, uh, and that became this this great tradition of the, the monarch summing up what had happened in the year past and what we might have to look forward to in the year ahead. A great piece of, of PR on behalf of the royal household. Um, it was televised the first time Christmas Day in 1957, uh, and it's become this sort of central thing of, of Christmas ever since. Uh, it's a very strong tradition that families will get together on Christmas Day and not watch the Queen's speech or the King's speech. Now, Queen Elizabeth, when she was young, um, she used to arrange a big pantomime at Windsor Castle every year. Uh, and she and her sister, Margaret would be central to this. And you can still see some of the, the costumes that she wore. There's an Aladdin costume, which Elizabeth wore, which I believe is on show at Windsor Castle, may not be on permanent show. They started it during the war and put these shows on for evacuees, people in the services, nurses, whatever. And it, it, it raised money for charity to buy wool to be made into military clothing. So that's, I guess, our final part of Christmas in place, the pantomime. And I think, you know, the pantomime, I think, goes back to these Twelfth Night revelries where all these anarchic shows would be put on, making fun of kings. There's lots of magic and wizardry. And again, traditionally, there was always a girl dressed as a boy. So um, the world turned upside down, uh, mocking the high and mighty, uh, a big part of our Christmas. I'm recording this before Christmas. Your first chance to listen to it is before Christmas. Who knows what King Charles has for us in store for his King's speech this year. Um, he'll no doubt mention his coronation. And that was when this show launched back in May for the coronation. I hope you've enjoyed listening over the year and I hope you'll join me after Christmas as we continue on our progress through the story of Britain and the story of our monarchy. Happy Christmas. I'll shut up now.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.